Man, no, I said this is no, this is scary. How are you guys doing? So this morning, um, this is, this is going to be more of a teaching time, okay? So just envision yourself in a classroom at Fire School of Ministry Chicago. And it's a small plug for this school. But really, um, I, I want to teach today. And I want to teach about this idea of being the church in homes, Okay. The house, the house, it's a fundamental launching point for kingdom ministry. The household. Before there were ever church buildings, there were households dominated by the lordship of Jesus Christ that provided not only a very practical place to illustrate the gospel, but a launch pad for reaching others. So we're going to walk through the book of Acts today. I want, maybe you've never noticed this. But we're, we're going to see the, the prominent place of the household in God's strategy for advancing the gospel. And we're going to look at several passages and acts that revolve around this idea. Now, first thing is first. I, I want to make sure we understand the language we're using. The English word church, when you find that in the Bible does not refer to a physical structure, does not refer to a building, an edifice, a, anything made of masonry, steel, glass, wood, whatever the case may be. The word ecclesia, which is what our English term comes from, means congregation or assembly or gathering of people. Okay? And you can track that all throughout the way the, the Hebrew is translated into Greek in the Old Testament, and it's consistent in all of intertestamental literature up to the time of the New Testament's composition. You can, you can track that, and you see it's always used for some kind of gathering of people. Okay? In other words, it makes no sense to say, and I, I know that we say this, and I say it myself sometimes, that it's, it, it would never fly in the New Testament to say, let's go to church. Do you understand what I mean? The church isn't a location. It's a group of people. So, I mean, you don't, that's why you don't see that in the New Testament. You don't read that. You don't see, and they went to church. Because that idea did not compute. It was one of those, uh, was that, uh, does not compute. Is that one of those old TV shows? Huh? Lost in Space does not compute. There, there is no such idea. Now, you can gather as the church right? You can gather as the church. You can be in the midst of the church, but you can't go to church. Now, to to give you some idea of what this would be like, it would be like as if I met Tracy for the first time and said, Tracy, I really want you to meet my family. And she's, oh, I'd love to meet your family. So, okay, well, um, why don't you come to uh, 640 East Butterfield Road in Lombard, and I'll introduce you to my family. And Tracy would get in her car and she would drive over to 640 East Butterfield Road in Lombard. And I say, well, here's the family. As you can see, we put a new roof on the family a couple months ago. Doesn't it look awesome? And uh, we painted the, this, this front side of the family. Uh, maybe next summer we're going we'll, to we'll, um, paint the back of the family. We've got siding on it now. But we're going to paint it next summer. And oh, by the way, come on inside. I want to show you the inside of the family. And she comes out, look, the family has three bedrooms, 
uh, the family has a beautiful, it's, it's a great fireplace part of the family here. And uh, like, it doesn't make any sense. What, what I'm introducing her to is the house, but not the family, because the family is the people. You understand? So, I mean, in the Bible, when you see the word church, we're not talking about a structure. We're talking about a people. So we are the church. We are the people. The location where we gather is distinct from the identity that we carry. Okay? Are you guys with me so far? So there is a distinction between the language of church and the location where the church gathers. We can't go to church, okay, literally speaking, because we are the church. We gather as the church. And we are the church whether we gather in groups of two, groups of ten, groups of fifty, groups of thousands. Fundamentally, it's the same thing. And when God looks at us, he sees us the same way. Isn't there an awesome promise that Jesus gave his disciples where two or more are gathered? I'm right there in the midst. That means the same power is present if you have a gathering of two or three than if you have a gathering of 80 million. I mean, for all practical purposes, Jesus is the same, isn't he? Didn't he say that? Didn't Hebrews testify? Same. Yesterday, today, forever. Same. In a house, in a public meeting place, in the, in, outside in a park. Same. Come on, what is it, Steve? It's a Presbyterian church? Is that what you're always referring to? I got all these in my head now because I've heard them a number of times. If you like them in a Presbyterian church, I know that one. I know the one that says I'm preaching better than you're responding. That one I got from you too. That's, so we are the church and we have the presence of God. It doesn't matter where we are. Good night. We don't need some mass campaign meeting to see the power of God demonstrate. And fundamentally, that's, gonna, that's the point of what we see in the book of Acts. So we're going to walk through some passages in Acts, and we'll read a few verses. I'll talk a little bit. We'll read a few more verses. I'll talk a little bit more. How about that? Okay, so, uh, and again, the point here is to teach, to illustrate the home, the house. Okay, it's, it's a strategic location for kingdom business. And it has to be perceived as such. And in the very model that God's giving birth to in our congregation, houses are going to be strategic locations for the work that we do. And if, if that hasn't been the case for you up to this point, we're just inviting you, look, start changing your way of thinking. Because whether we have a building this size, a building that size on Douglas, we still need the house. We still need houses for God's work in this city. And so the, where God is directing us, where God is leading us, we're going to start building house churches, communities, in localities, in neighborhoods where God's calling us to plant, to localize, to reach those areas for Christ. And you're going to see how, why that's going to happen because God's committed to that model. It's a powerful way of illustrating the kingdom and serving as a springboard for its advance. So let's just start with one of our favorite passages in the whole Bible because we are you know, spirit-filled people. So look, let's turn to Acts 2. Acts 2, verses 1 and 2. Okay, I know it's most of our, you know, it's our favorite passage. But sometimes we overlook how this thing started. Okay, are you there yet? 
Acts 2, say amen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, this is Sunday, 50 days after Passover, okay? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire, what? Huh. Huh. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, let me ask you a question. The most significant Holy Ghost outpouring in world history. Did it happen in a stadium? Did it happen in a public park? No. Did it happen in a church building or a synagogue? Where did it happen? In somebody's house. Do you understand? They came after the ascension of Jesus. They watched him go. The two men dressed in white, stood there and said, what are you guys looking at? You know, he's coming back in the same way you saw him go, now get to work. And what did they get to work to do for the next 40 days or whatever, you know, however long, 50 days it was in this period? They, they met constantly to pray. And the location of prayer on this day, this critical day in Acts 2, was somebody's house. Now, it might have been the same upper room that was referred to in Acts 1.13, but Luke doesn't say that. Uh, what is fascinating is that it's the house that's the location where God's promise began to be fulfilled, to clothe his disciples in power, to pour out his spirit on them. You might think, well, what about the temple? I mean, that's the biggest location available in Jerusalem. Why, why wouldn't they meet there? Why didn't God meet them there? Well, there was something God that, that God was doing was organized around the fact that it wasn't the temple, right? Jesus came saying, you really don't need the temple anymore. I am the the temple, right? John chapter two, you destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He himself was the location of forgiveness of sins. He himself was the location of the presence of God. And it's a deliberate move to say, I'm going to pour out my spirit apart from the temple precincts at all. You're going to be in some nondescript location. doesn't even say whose house it was in the Bible. But it was a house. They were all gathered. There they were. And they were seeking the Lord. And all of a sudden, and everything changed. Now, to me, this is probably why the focus continues to be on houses throughout the book of Acts and even Paul's ministry. Because you see that something happens in that house that marks it out as a jumpstart location for this movement. Now, after the outpouring happens, they move out into the public area, and they end up at the temple courts. But that's not where it started. And I would submit to you that there's something there for us to consider. You don't, you don't need a huge public area. We don't, and thank God for the buildings he's entrusted us with. But we better be clear in our hearts. It's not the buildings. It's the power of God in the midst of the people of God. And the houses themselves provide us with ample opportunity to see the kingdom expand. Now, I want you to listen, because this is, even in modern times, do you know where the greatest Christian expansion is taking place across the world today? China. And it's all house church-based, or 90% of it. I mean, they don't have public evangelistic campaigns. I'm sorry. 
They don't have Reinhard Bonnke going out there preaching to millions of people at once. And yet, by percentage, okay, the, the, the highest rate of increase among believers is happening there and in secret. So don't tell me we need X, we need Y, we need Z in order for the gospel to go forward. We don't need anything like that. We just need ourselves and the power of God. And houses are just as good a location as any. And in fact, God christens a house. He pours out his spirit in a house. And it changes the world. There have been very few manifestations of the power of God like this in human history. I mean, I don't know about you, I've never seen tongues of fire come down on somebody's head. I've never seen that happen. And yet there it did. It happened there at Pentecost in a house. You know what we tend to do? We tend to think of houses as add-ons. You know, we got a church facility, and that's where, the, that's where the real stuff happens. You really want to get touched? Bring somebody to the church. And yet here is the very beginning of the Christian movement. Born in a home in power that absolutely transformed everybody present forever. We've got to get our heads screwed on straight a little bit. Homes are not add-ons. They're like the lifeline. I mean, whether you get a building or not, if you got a home, you got a power center. So this spiritual encounter jump-started the church, and it was born out of a private home. I don't think it lacked for power. I don't think the anointing in the house was, was uh, somehow less than when the anointing fell in the meeting in the public space. I mean, hey, God got everything he wanted out of that meeting. And we have to reframe our thinking. Sometimes we think real spiritual power, real anointing, that's only available in a public worship service where we can, you know, have a big building like this. I'm telling you, we're mistaken. That's, that's a little bit disrespectful to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Who doesn't need our buildings, I promise you. I mean, again, please hear my heart. Thank God for them. I love the fact that we have a building that we can use. Because I would get really tired cleaning up my house after all y'all people come in there, you know, all the time. But I'm telling you, it's, it's nice, but it's not essential. And that's where we have to have our programming redone. So listen, this moment, born in a house, leads to the conversion of 3,000 people. Not bad. What'd you say? You say, what's your evangelistic strategy? Well, we're going to hit the streets. We're going to hit the parks. We're going to hit the, and I'm all for it. Let's go. But keep something in mind. This evangelistic strategy was pretty interesting. They gathered in the house. They sought the Lord. The Holy Ghost was poured out. They went outside. 3,000 people got converted. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. It's a little bit different model than we typically think of. And I, I, it just needs to be a part of our thought process. It needs to be a part of the way we think. That God baptized his movement in a house. All right. Now, what happened after that? You go to the end, toward the end of chapter 2 now. And this is a passage we've been reading like every Sunday, I think. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, 
they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now look, the movement that started in a home has now included the temple as a meeting place. The, the fundamental reason that happened was very practical. 3,000 people will not fit in your home. Unless you're Michael Jordan. Even that, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's got a spread out there on, that's for sale, by the way. If anyone's interested, I hear it's about 28 million. So, you know, if you're in that category, you might check it out. I hear it's real nice. But w- look, some, some people say, well, see, they use the temple. Yeah, they use the temple because 3,000 people got baptized in one day. When you have that problem, come and see me. But otherwise, let's keep it real and let's concentrate on the priority, which the church continued to do. Notice, the temple did not replace the homes. Do you understand? It was in addition to. They met at the temple because that's a whole lot of people. And in antiquity, there aren't buildings that hold that many people, typically. Even the biggest building, unless you're talking about a coliseum where the gladiators fight or something like that, most public spaces, you won't even hold it. That's why they're meet in the, uh, later on in Acts, it says the temple colonnade, Solomon's colonnade, which is like a, a large open area off to the side of the holy place and everything else. So they meet together as, you know, this mass of people. But man, they keep going day by day in the homes. Day by day. Think about it. They, they, for a very practical reason, they gather together in a, in a bigger place, but they continue their habit, is the way Acts records it. Day by day, they took their meals together, gladness and sincerity of heart, in their homes. Now, obviously, that means they were gathering in smaller groups all around Jerusalem, people's homes. And, and we should think about the power of that idea. Again, we are the church. We don't go to church. We are the church, and wherever we gather, we are the church gathered in that place. And their commitment, their devotion, it says here, they were devoted to two things that have uh, a, a primary connection to the home, fellowship and the breaking of bread. And they did this all the time. Now, as we're going to see in Acts, the apostles' teaching also took place in homes. Prayer also took place in homes. So look, whatever they did, whatever they were devoted to, They were devoted to in homes even more than they were devoted to in the temple. Think it through now. This is the priority. This is the urgency. This breaking of bread. It's it's interesting, this language. The breaking of bread. What does that remind you of in the life of Jesus? Last Supper. (laughs) See, one of the things that scholars point out is the language of breaking of bread here in Acts is the same as the language of breaking of bread at at the Last Supper. It's the same as the language of breaking of bread in Luke 24 when the disciples were going to Emmaus with Jesus and said they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Remember that? And then he disappeared. And and this whole idea of the Lord's Supper taking place as a meal, right? In the context of the gathered community. Jesus said, Jesus, Jesus didn't say, whenever you eat this chip and drink this sip, remember me. He said, you eat the bread and you drink the wine because it's in the middle of a meal. And if you read 1 Corinthians 11, clearly when Paul rebukes the church, it's because they were celebrating the meal improperly. Why is it called the Lord's Supper? Why isn't it just called the Lord's Snack? No, it's a supper because it's a meal. 
And this is where the Lord's Supper was born. And for the first two or three centuries of Christian faith, this is the way they remembered him. At a meal where the kids are spilling stuff on the ground and the grown-ups are talking about everyday activities when they're, where they're having fellowship and talking with one another and rehearsing the things that are going on in their lives. And then at a certain point in the meal, they pass around the bread. They say, you know, you know what made us what we are? Is that he gave himself. And after the supper, they take a cup. And they, Can you believe the commitment of God to us as a people demonstrated in blood? And they take that. And they go back to their love and their celebration and their, as it was called in the second century, their agape. They use the term for love as an expression of their celebration of the Lord's Supper. What's that like, guys? Can we, can we move in that direction? God willing, we will. We're going to plan for the, during Holy Week, April 5th, it's a Thursday night. We're going to do sort of a, a last supper right here. We're going to have a Lord's Supper. Now, because we don't want people to miss out, we're going to do it here at the church building. (laughs) But the mentality we're going to bring to it is this. We're going to have a meal together. Thursday, April 5th, we're going to have a meal together. We're going to have the the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the bread and the cup in the context of our corporate meal. Then we're going to come upstairs and we're going to worship and we're going to pray. It's going to be like the night he was betrayed. We're going to, in a way, we're going to live that out together. Because we're committed to being a people that are defined by more than just services. Okay? So, I mean, these meals, these, these commitments to fellowship, the breaking of bread, this is something we're going to give ourselves to. We're not going to despise the temple. Because I mean, when you get a, an excessive number of people that don't fit in a home, thank God that you have something. Paul took to a, the Hall of Tyrannus in Acts 19. There were, there were other locations that you, you, know, you see people taken advantage of. Sometimes they met in synagogues until they got thrown out. But the home is still the target. The home is still something you have regardless of whether you have anything else. So even here, even after 3,000 people are added, they don't say, oh, our church is too big now. We don't need to meet in homes anymore. No. We continue to meet in homes day by day, taking our meals together, spending time partnering together for the work of the kingdom. And they met in the temple because they had that big number of people. Okay, so you see the pattern? Let's let's take another scripture, Acts 5 now. Let's turn over a few more pages. Acts 5. Here, uh, the, the apostles are under arrest. They're taken before the leaders of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And uh, they're not sure what to do. And so uh, a man named Gamaliel, a a famous rabbi, stands up to give counsel to the assembly. I'm going to pick up his counsel in verse 38. He says, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. This is, he's talking to the council saying, don't bother the apostles. So, I mean, this guy, in a way, God's using them, trying to use them. Okay. He says, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, if it's just a human endeavor, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Ouch. So they took it as his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, 
they beat them. Hello. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council sad and discouraged because of their persecution. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not reading that right. I'm sorry. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame, dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus the Messiah. Right? So following their arrest and their summary beating, the apostles leave the Jewish leaders rejoicing. And what follows is now their agenda. Now that they know the opposition has reached serious enough levels to, to take you know, them physically, to beat them, to threaten their lives, okay, we better, we better change our strategy. No, they don't really change the strategy, do they? It's the same one. And it consists of every day in the temple and from house to house. Now, this sounds like a familiar refrain at this point. And I'm not trying to beat you guys over the head, but I do want you to notice something. The strategy hasn't changed. You know, we're several chapters in now to the book of Acts. The strategy hasn't changed. We are still seeing the focus not just on the, the large gathering, but from house to house. This is, this is the way. Now, you, you see in Acts 5.28, it says that they filled Jerusalem with their teaching. How do you figure they did that? How do you figure they filled Jerusalem with the teaching? From the temple? I don't think so, guys. Listen, they didn't have electronic sound systems. And you know, at the best, maybe they had some megaphones. You know, they could call them, but... You don't fill the city of Jerusalem from the temple. You fill it going house to house. That's how you fill the city with your teaching. See, because not everybody comes to the temple. But you can penetrate every neighborhood if you just move from house to house. And this was their mindset. They went house to house, teaching and preaching. Listen, I know we have a certain mindset. Some of us are a little old school. We think that in order to do teaching, you need a classroom. Or in order to do preaching, you need a sanctuary. But these brothers did not need that. They just needed a living room. They just needed a courtyard. They just needed, uh, who knows, an annex onto the kitchen. All they needed was some location, some house, and they could teach and they could preach. And I know we all have in our head, Visions of the great preachers, you know? And every time we see them, we see them in a, in a building like this or in a, you know, a mass evangelistic meeting with people covering the hillsides. And praise God for that. It's awesome that people can take advantage of those locations, but it's not essential. Listen to me. They fill the city with their teaching, without tent meetings, without public outreaches, without mass crusade evangelism. They filled it going house to house. They filled it going house to house. It was their their fundamental commitment. These disciples seem strangely ignorant of the need for a devoted facility. Look, Look, I run a school of ministry. I use a facility. We use classrooms. But I'm telling you, we don't need them. Oh, it's quiet. We don't need that stuff. We can teach and preach and train house to house. We can. 
Ain't nobody going to stop us. Now, look, I'm not saying today we're throw away the building, you know, throw away the. But I am trying to say, better make sure we've got in your head clearly. Thank God for the extra things that he gives us. And in our cultural context, it makes sense to have a location. It makes sense to have a building. It makes sense to have. But but makes sense and necessary are two different things. Not necessary. Thank God for it. We have it. We're going to use it. And we better use it well. And we better steward it. Because we're responsible for what God gives us. But, man, let's remember what's essential. I was in El Salvador in 1999, and I saw 16, 17-year-old kids planting churches under trees. They just went into neighborhoods. They called out people, and they sat down under a big banana tree and preached and taught and trained. Don't tell me we need something. We don't. We got everything we need in the Holy Ghost and one another. That's how the mission goes forward. Okay, I went from preaching to meddling. There are 5,000 people strong at this point, according to Acts 4. And so they're meeting in the temple, but they're going house to house. And, and this is, you know, the thing you want to think about. There are quite a number of passages in the New Testament. Uh, especially in Paul's letter, some in Peter, where specific instructions are given to husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. Why do you suppose that is? Well, on a fundamental level, it's because the household is the primary place where the gospel is made evident. And those relationships in the home better be in order. Because the church is present in the homes. And so it's a way of ordering people's lives. It's like, this is what the gospel means. It means the home looks a certain way. And when people gather in the home, you have a chance to put on display how God is reordering the priorities of people's lives. Husbands, don't just command your wives around like some ignoramus. Love them, serve them, give your life for them like Christ gave his life for the church. Wives, don't snap at your husbands when they don't get it because they interpret your words a certain way. No, no, humble yourselves. Just submit, you know, build, build through your love. You know, I mean, and this is so critical because it's the house where the gospel meetings are taking place. I mean, there's nothing that sends a a worse signal than coming into the home of someone for a gospel meeting and there's nothing but bickering and bantering. No, there's all kinds of fight and there's all kinds of chaos. It's like, this is the gospel? This is the way the gospel works? You see, this is why the house is so critical. This is why the criterion for elders in 1 Timothy 3 is that they govern their households well. Because God's family is a household. If you can't govern your own, how are you going to govern other people's households? It's the household where we see the proof. The proof is in the pudding. Bill Cosby used to say. And that's where we see it. Because the, the, these first believers were so committed to saying, we, this is where we see God's power most, most strikingly demonstrated. Because in a society where, where the, the levels of dysfunction were, were alarmingly close to our own in the present day, the household was a place to put on display the power and love of God. See how we function? We're we're not like we used to be. We're we're something new in God. 
freshly created by the power of the gospel. We want you to come and want you to see what this looks like. You see? I mean, here's a vision for kingdom expansion. We're not idolizing the nuclear family. Don't hear me saying that. Because these weren't nuclear families. I guarantee you that. These are people living with their grandparents, living with their aunts and uncles, living with their cousins. Much more like maybe some of your households than mine. My household was a nuclear family when I grew up. Mom, dad, kids. That's, we were all, the only ones living there. Not in-laws, not half-sisters, half-brothers, not cousins-in-law. I mean, I didn't, it wasn't that complicated for me. It's more complicated for some of you guys, but I'm telling you, it's more like it was here. And we're not saying we idolize the nuclear family. We're not saying that. We're saying the household is the model for the way we relate to each other. We call God Father together. That makes us brothers and sisters. And in Galatians 6.10, Paul calls the church the household of God. That, that's our primary paradigm for understanding what's going on here. We're building a family. And so households become a natural place to express how the family is transformed by God's power. And when people observe that, they think to themselves, what in the world happened here? And someone can say, let me tell you what happened here. We found a father who loves us and wants to train us to be his family. And that's our mission. And we want you to join it. We want you to sign on. We want you to become a part of the family. We want you to get adopted. Right? Romans 8, the spirit of adoption. That's the Holy Spirit. He brings people into the family of God. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's see one more uh, here early in Acts, Acts 8. Acts 8 is not a very happy passage, but again, it's noteworthy. Uh, this is when Saul, also called Paul, was approving of the execution of Stephen. His martyrdom. And uh, according to Acts 8.1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Not against the building, but against the people, right? Uh, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Was he ravaging a building? No, he was ravaging the people. He was entering, what? House after house, or every house, dragging off men and women, committed them to prison. Let me ask you something. How did he know to go to houses? Why did he just stake out their church buildings? Because they didn't have any. <laughs> church buildings are not constructed until the 4th century A.D. That's, okay, 300-some years after Jesus. We don't see a single church building until then. Saul knew. Saul knew where to find them, and he went house to house. You know, it, when, when the public uh, presence in the temple was made dangerous through persecution, what happened? Did they all quit? Did they all find a new religion? Did they all convert to a different synagogue that wasn't quite as dangerous? No, no, no. They kept meeting house to house. And so Saul, aware of their mindset and their strategy, when he's trying to find Christian leaders to arrest house to house. He knew. They kept associating with one another, and Saul understood that. Even an unbeliever understood 
And, he, that, and that's where he went after them. And I want to say two things about this. Number one, to be committed to gospel ministry in homes is subversive. It's subversive. It will be viewed as subversive by the general world system and even by well-meaning Christians. It will be viewed as subversive. It will be viewed as threatening. Like if you start meeting in churches, somehow that means that you're disrespecting the church. Sorry, if you start meeting in homes, yo, you're disrespecting the church. You don't believe the church is, is God's vehicle. You're just, cu- you're just cutting yourself off. You're just isolating yourself. Well, that may be true of some people, but it's not true of us. We're not isolating ourselves. We want to multiply our effectiveness, see? But it will be perceived as, of, as subversive because you're doing something now that's out of public control. You come to a building like this, the police, they can cordon it off. They can shut it down. They can forbid people to enter it. I mean, they can do all that kind of stuff. You meet in homes, and suddenly you're off the grid a little bit. Suddenly you're a little harder to right, control, right? You're subversive. You're dangerous. And when they, when they made it a point to meet in homes like that, it's a, that idea is profoundly disturbing to a religious system that depends on predictable patterns of gathering, predictable hours of gathering. There were hours of prayer at the temple. There predictable um, process and procedures. It's disturbing. It's subversive. It's going to undermine. And, and, and some among us, we're going to be uncomfortable because we feel like, well, this is, this is not what I'm used to. I, uh, I don't know what to do necessarily. When I come into the church, I know what to do. I know that I greet somebody at the door. I know that I come and find a place to sit down. I know that uh, I stand up for a while and then I sit down for a while. I stand up again for a while. I sit down for a while. I know at a certain point they come up and tell me where to come and stand so that they can pray for me. I know at a certain point I give the money and I put it in the... See, we always know we've got that figured out. So meeting in a house is subversive because it means that the typical patterns we think of when we think of church change. And bro, when you think of a living room, it's a little bit different than thinking of a sanctuary like this. And I think for good reason. Again, we're building a family under the leadership of the father. So if we can't relate to each other in a living room, chances are the way we relate to each other here is going to be messed up. It's going to be dysfunctional. It's, I mean, you're going to think of, well, the, the guys up here who talks, he's the professional. This is his career. It's his job. And the rest of us yokels, you know, we just kind of sit here. We kind of listen. We give the money. We thank God for the professional who does his job. Guys, there's no such thing as a professional father. There's no such thing as professional siblings. There's no such thing as people whose heart bleed for the, for the lost who are professionals. And it, when we reduce it to that, we totally miss the point of who we are. Okay? My wife is not a professional wife who I hire out just to be my wife. It's ridiculous. It's actually immoral. But think about it in terms of that. I mean, that's our mindset when we walk into a building like this. And it doesn't have to be. But I'm telling you, how do we avoid that? Part of the way we avoid it is by meeting in homes and realizing we all got the Holy Spirit. And we need to learn to build each other. If the only builders in a congregation are people that stand on a platform, we got a lot of trouble. We got big problems. 
Because that means we've got a couple people heaving a great deal of weight and a bunch of people just kind of sitting around watching. Oh, I was blessed by the, by the message today, Pastor. Great. What you going to do about it? Well, I'll be back here next Sunday to sit on the bench again. <laughs> Congratulations. You know, I mean, wow, we're really making progress now. We're really building disciples. So, look, homes are subversive. The system wants to pigeonhole us. It, 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 the, the system is looking for us to be in certain places at certain times. When we show up unexpectedly around the corner from you, watch out. Secondly, homes require courage. I want you to think about this. From uh, the, the standpoint of bravery, it, you know, when, when you meet at a building like this, you're not putting a whole lot at risk. I mean, you show up here a couple times a week, and you, know, you put in your, you know, we, we worship, we pray, hear the word. That's great. But, man, if somebody comes to bomb this building, I mean, you'll be sad for a little while, and you'll be frustrated about that, but you'll still be fine because you still got your house. But what happens when your house starts being recognized in your neighborhood as an outpost for God's reign? What happens when your house gets connected with your neighbors as a place where they teach intolerance? Because they say that Jesus is the only way to God. What happens when your house is a place where Santaria and all these other things get cast out of people and all of a sudden you're undermining the cultural religious expressions of the Latino community? What happens then when it's your house? I'm telling you, this is not a game. We're, we're not going to build house churches because we need something else to do during the week. This is kingdom business. And if you're going to be in it, you better recognize the cost. Because somebody's going to associate your house with the work of the kingdom. And that means all the, all the blessings and benefits are yours that come along with that. And all the danger. I'm telling you, you guys understand, don't you? The, the, the cultural flow of our society right now. And that people like you and me who stand for the truth of the gospel are going to be increasingly marginalized just from normalcy. Normalcy. Think about that. The normal of our cultural situation. We're, we're perceived, my goodness, as extremists. I mean, that's what we are. And we think homosexual practices are sinful. I mean, we're extreme. That's hate speech. We ought to be locked up. We ought to be taken to the psychiatrist. I mean, that just, that's the trajectory we're on. I mean, just things like that. We believe that not all religions are the same. You, you cultural snob, you bigot. How could you possibly say that people who worship Buddha are not just as spiritual and going to heaven? You know what I mean? How could you say that? And so, you know, you get branded a bigot. You get branded, you know, arrogant. I mean, whatever the, the, the language is now, and they know where you live. Because you got people streaming in and out of your house every week. Every other day, people coming in. They get, you got worship music blasting. <laughs> you got people crying out to God at all hours of the night. You, I mean, and now the neighborhood knows. So now what? Now what happened when the neighborhood, neighborhood gets fed up with the traffic on the street? And they come and talk to you. So, you know, we really don't want people to meet in your house anymore. It's really causing, you know... We're losing parking spaces. 
What you going to do? Because they know where you live now. It's going to take courage to identify your home as a place where the kingdom is going to be demonstrated. This isn't just some small group church growth strategy. This is the kingdom of God. And, and when we take a step like this, we better be ready. We better be ready. They had to be ready. When you start moving with the gospel in your house and in your street, your neighbors are going to recognize this. If they don't, you're doing something wrong. And not all of them are going to be delighted. So it's going to take courage. So Paul knew, I want to exterminate this movement. Where do we go? House to house. House to house. That's the way the job gets done. That's the way you attack the job. All right, a couple more. Acts 10. You guys with me? (laughs) Acts 10. You know this story. Uh, This is where Peter has a supernatural vision while he's in Joppa or Lydda. I forgot which city he was in. Uh, A couple guys come and get him and fetch him and bring him to Caesarea to appear before a fellow by the name of Cornelius. And Acts 10.22, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Listen to me. Do you ever wonder about what the best way is to reach your family with the gospel? Let me propose this as an idea. You know what Cornelius did? He, he wasn't even born again. But he was a God-fearing man. And in, during a time of prayer, an angel spoke to him and said, you've got to bring this guy, Peter. He's going to tell you everything you need to hear. And you know what he did? He didn't like say to Peter, Peter, let's, uh, let's meet out in a coffee shop. I don't want people to know that I'm kind of interested in what you have to say. He didn't say, let's meet in a public place in case, you know, we, we need to make a quick getaway. He invited to him, him to his home. And not only that, but he called all his relatives and his closest friends. And he had them sitting there waiting. You think about that. <laughs> he's got not even born again, but he's aware and so he gathers them all, and they're all sitting there. And when Peter comes to the door, they're all like, I mean, you just think about that. They're all just ready. They're, they've been called by this Roman soldier, pagan, but somehow has a respect for God. And Peter walks in the door, and he's like, what in the, you know what I mean? What do you guys, ah, oh, he says, no, I understand. I saw the vision. God's no respecter of persons. I'm here. Peter starts to preach the gospel, tell them about Jesus, everything they did and done. And the Holy Spirit disrespects Peter so badly here, don't you think? He says he wasn't even done talking. And the Spirit, I mean, it's like, there are times when we hear sermons, hopefully not today, where you're like, let the Spirit come and shut this guy up. But this was one of those moments where he wasn't even done talking. The Holy Spirit was poured out. And they started speaking in tongues. And according to the end of this passage, they were all saved. All of them. I, I want to submit something to you. 
you, you have unbelieving family members, friends, close relatives. What would happen if you did this? What would happen if you told them, I have a message that is so critical. It's, it's a life and death word. I, I believe you need to hear this. I want you to come to my house Saturday afternoon at 3. I love you too much. I, I've got to, would you please do me this favor? Would you please honor me like this? Would you come and listen? And if you didn't feel comfortable doing it, you, you asked one of the brothers here, one of, the, one of our leaders, he said, would you, would you come? Would you preach the gospel? I'm believing that in my house we'll see salvation. What would happen? He said, I don't know what would happen. Well, here's one possibility. You know, what, what if that was on our radar? And again, I'm not saying that we stop going out to the streets, to the highways and the byways, to the public parks, to the taste of Chicago. Let it be. Let it all happen. But when we disregard the first fundamental point of connection that we have with the people closest to us in our lives, what are we doing? It's a natural first step for evangelism. Houses is not just way of mutual edification. It is. But it's also an evangelistic strategy. When you say, how are we going to reach this neighborhood? How are we going to reach my neighbors? How are we going to reach my, my loved ones, my friends? And our first thought is, oh, i got to bring them to the church service. And number one, they don't want to come to church because they don't believe in Jesus. i got news for you. Number two, they're already walking in, looking at their watch, thinking, okay, how much longer do i got to get home for this? Number three, they don't know anybody up in here. All you're doing is bringing them to a room full of strangers to hear a word they're not interested in during a time period where more than likely they'd rather be sleeping. How's that sound for an evangelistic strategy? You already got three things against you and they haven't even heard a worship chorus yet. What if you brought them into your home with people they already know you served them a meal and you loved on them on a Saturday evening. And you sat them down and you said, I got to tell you something. I, my life has been radically changed by Jesus. Can I tell you the story? Or I've brought this friend of mine here that I know. We, we worship Jesus together. I want you to hear him tonight. He's, I, this is the message that changed my life. Do you, do you think that there's a possibility that might be received a little bit better, that it might be a little bit more effective. It was pretty effective in Acts 10. All right, we're out of time. Acts 12, verse 12. You can write these down if you want. When Peter was arrested and put in jail after James was martyred, they gathered in a house and started to pray. It wasn't just a prayer meeting taking place in a synagogue or a public location. They gathered in a home, and the prayer meeting was pretty powerful, I'd say, because an angel liberated Peter from prison, and he showed up at the door. And the servant girl was like, oh, it's Peter's ghost. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 it's me. Would you open the door? They're probably on my tail. And he shows up, and it's like, good night. Prayer meeting in a house, getting the job done. Acts 16, after Paul and Silas have a prayer meeting in prison. The gates are open. There's an earthquake and everything. They talk to the jailer. He's like, I'm going to kill myself. And they said, no, no, we're still here. He said, what? What are you doing here, you idiots? And they said, no, no, listen, we, there's a reason we're here. And they tell him the gospel. He brings them to his house. Acts 16, 30 through 34. And in that context, his entire household 
believe the gospel. One of the ways to get your entire household saved is to let your entire household hear the gospel. Yeah. Okay. After this, it's at Lydia's house in Philippi, Acts 1640, that the believers were gathering where Paul went to visit and stayed until it was time to move along to Thessalonica. Acts 18, verses 17 through 11, uh, verses 7 through 11. After being thrown out of a synagogue in Corinth, Paul's base of operations became the household of Titius Justus, a Greek God-fearer who welcomed him into his home where for 18 months Paul based his ministry in Corinth. Household. Acts 20, verses 18 through 21. Paul summarizes his ministry in Asia in this way. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of Asia, this was Paul's missionary strategy. Not just public proclamation, which he did. Probably did it in the Agora, the the marketplace. Probably did it in rented halls like in Ephesians. And in Ephesus, according to Acts 19, the hall of Tyrannus, this place... But he said, I, I did it all throughout Asia. I did it house to house in, a, did it, in addition to the public places. So it's not just a Jerusalem thing. It's not just a Jewish thing. Okay? It's a gospel thing. We, we don't just preach in public. We work this thing from household to household. Acts 21, verses 7 through 14. On his way to Jerusalem, while in Caesarea, Paul stays in the house of Philip the evangelist. The same guy who preached the gospel in Samaria in Acts 8. It's here that a prophet comes and tells Paul that he's going to be arrested by the Roman army while he's in Jerusalem. In a house. Prophetic activity? You mean you can do prophecy in a house? Prophecy, evangelism, teaching, miracles. What's, are we missing something? I think everything's there. It's pretty good. House to house and in public. Acts 28 at the end of the book. Verses 23 through 31 tells the story of Paul when he arrives in Rome, and it says in his own lodging, he based his ministry for two years while he's under Roman house arrest. So here, of course, he's under arrest, so he's limited. But still, he finds a way to use his lodging as a point for continuing the ministry. He's not hindered by a lack of public space. Okay, so look, we've walked through these key passages and acts, and we could look at different parts of Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament But I want you to see this, that that the emphasis in Acts is on the effectiveness and the priority of moving from house to house, preaching the gospel, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, the prayer meeting in Acts 12. Everything is happening there that's happening anywhere else. And this is simply what we believe the Lord is saying right now. That on some levels, we're not as effective as we need to be in all of these areas. Because we've only got one half of the equation. We've got something happening here at the building. But there's not a whole lot of us that are engaged in a committed, targeted house church context. We have a few Bible studies. We have some smaller groups. But we want to even be more effective than this. We want to see divine partnerships, birthed by the Spirit, targeting households and neighborhoods. This is, this is a God-ordained strategy 
not just for evangelism, not just for building relationships, but for being the church, right? Because the church is not a building. It's a people, right? So look, as we move forward, I want you to be praying. We all want you to be praying. God, what are you saying to us? What about my family? What about my home? Is my household supposed to be one of these places where a group of believers starts to gather regularly. We start to figure out what God wants to do in my neighborhood. Maybe you're going to host one of these gatherings on a regular basis. Maybe you don't have the, maybe the facility to host it, but you want to be involved in one and, and part, part of it and providing support and partnership. And I mean, we don't even, we feel like we're just on the, the cusp of what God's trying to do with us. But as, as Steve was saying earlier, we just want to obey the Lord. And when we read the book of Acts, it's like, good night. How can we get away from this? How can we miss this? That it's one of the most powerful components of the early Christian movement. And one of the reasons it was so successful, not only in reaching people for Christ, but also in building communities of faith all around the world. Not just in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but in all of Asia, Paul says. So this is what we're about. This is what we feel God laying in our hearts. Among other things, we are going to be giving ourselves to discerning his will in this matter, to preparing ourselves as a body for this kind of work. And it's going to take a little time to get this thing clarified in our minds and in our hearts to, to train you know, some, some people and leaders that, that will make sure that this thing stays on target that it stays focused on the priority of the gospel, that it doesn't turn into some little click, that it doesn't turn into some little, our house church is better than your house church. I mean, it's like we, we've got to keep it driven by the priority of the gospel and the kingdom. But when that happens, I'm telling you, I believe God's going to pour out his spirit. And it may not be in a meeting here. It may happen at some brother's house. And they call you up at three in the morning and say, you better get over here. Something's going on here. We just started to worship God and we, something happened. One of my neighbors was walking by. We called him. We told him about, you know, we just asked him if he wanted to come out. We prayed for him. He was immediately healed of blindness. He couldn't see out of his left eye. He called his friends. They came over. And right there in the middle of an intersection at like whatever, Laramie and Montrose, the Holy Ghost is falling. And it's like, guys, guys, you got to see what's going on here. And the next day, at somebody's house at, at uh, Narragansett and uh, Harlem, the, the Holy Ghost falls again. Like, we don't, this is the heart of God. Let it be that we need space for 3,000 people. But I'm telling you, the way it's going to happen is not necessarily by holding big public meetings, but by moving house to house with the gospel, the love, and the power of God. Would you stand with me? Lord, today... We submit to you. We give ourselves to you in every way. Lord, we refuse to hold back. We refuse to turn another direction that maybe we're more comfortable or maybe we know how it works better. We think we've got the system down. We want to follow you, Lord. We want to do what's in your heart, my God. We want to see the real gospel proclaimed, the real kingdom demonstrated, the real church constructed. Not as a facility or an edifice, but as a people. A family that knows you as Father. A family that knows how to love and serve and care for one another. A family that is not ashamed to be an outpost for the gospel. 
a family that's defined by courage, a family that is not uh, scared to represent you, Lord, in our neighborhoods, in our apartment buildings, on our blocks. God, we ask you to pour out the Holy Spirit. Lord, you did this 2,000 years ago when people made this commitment, when they prioritized these things. We're asking you to come again. Rain down, Father. Rain down from heaven. May the Lord Jesus himself become our household owner. Teach us your ways, Lord. Teach us how to relate to each other in love, in faith, with kindness and gentleness brought about as fruit in the Holy Spirit. We need clarity and direction, Lord. We don't think we have it all understood. We don't think we know everything, God. We need you to speak to us. Teach us. Clarify this mandate that you're dropping in our hearts. Lord, we ask you, God, may we not lag behind what the Spirit is saying. And may we not run ahead. We want to be right with you. We want to be marching to the beat of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I am, I'm, I'm submitting everything, Lord, that I've said today to you, God. Lord, if it's right, then may, may this find fertile soil in the hearts of your people, God. If there's anywhere that I've missed it, Lord, I pray that you'd bring correction. Lord, I pray that you'd help me. Help all of us, Lord. Steve and Jose and Frank and our spouses and others, Lord, who are going to be involved in this process of shaping a, a movement and a mission, Lord. we got to have your spirit moving. we got to have wisdom. We have to have revelation, Lord. This isn't just some technique or some method, Lord. We just we want to be faithful to you. Hear the cry of our heart today, Lord. Build a church, God, made out of spiritual people, Lord, worthy of offering you sacrifices, worthy, worthy of honoring you, God. Lord, may you be able to build something awesome and unbelievable through just submitted people, People who are nothing impressive when the world looks upon us. But we're everything to you. Because we can be your option in our neighborhood, on our block, in our, in our city, God. We, we want you to be able to trust us with everything that's in your heart to pour out. Father, thank you for your word, for your presence, God. We give ourselves to your cause. We hold nothing back and we pray that you would hold nothing back from us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I want to encourage you as, you as you pray about these things. If you feel the Lord speaking, uh, if you have a vision or a dream or anything related you know, to this whole strategy that we feel God unfolding, would you relate that to one of us uh, leaders, Steve and Tracy, my, myself, Carol, Frankie, Janelle, Jose and Lenise, Dave or Danielle, we just want to hear what God's saying. We don't believe for one minute that we're the only ones God can speak to. That's, I mean, we don't believe that. So we want to have this a sense of, man, together, let's seek the Lord. Let's discern. Let's, let's hear his voice. Let's compare notes and try to get, you know, the, the greatest level of clarity and insight that we can. Now, leaders have to lead. This is not an excuse to say, you know, we don't know what to do. Tell us, you know, we have to lead. But at the same time, the Lord's voice is not restricted, you know, j just to leaders, okay? I mean, we are his family. So let's be in this together. Amen. Awesome.